Waukesha, May 31st, 2014. Three young girls take a morning walk to a neighborhood park after celebrating at a birthday party the night before. After a short while of playing together on the playground, madness would ensure that the lives of the three 12-year-old girls would tragically be forever altered. Several terrifying minutes later, two of the girls walked out of the park, while the third remained in a wooded area inside, bloodied, barely breathing, and left for dead. The ensuing chaos would tear at the seams of a community and sensationally grip a confused nation, all seemingly for the purpose of pleasing one specific digital deity. Slender Man. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 32 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, another host. An- another host. That Mickey other guy. Sanders is along with you me. Mickey, how you doing, buddy? You no, know, I'm raising these part of us because we're using house. Yeah, I need a space to do this in, you know? I'm in the room. I can hear you when you say this stuff. We are here for another episode. Episode Way to blow past it. 30. Nice work. To heading into, actually, we are firmly into Thanksgiving week. We would like to offer you all a very happy Thanksgiving and, and thank you, a heartfelt thank you to all the listeners out there. Our numbers continue to grow. We cannot be more happy with how much we have grown over the last year and a half or so. And speaking two of years, Thanksgiving, was- once again, we don't mean our waistlines, but. We're thankful for you. Of course. Like we said, we continue to grow. We have more things on the horizon. We're going to be starting a Patreon in the spring, as we have talked about. And we can probably be a little more specific about that, I think. Can't we, Mick? I think this is... No. Maybe we'll move on there. No, we're just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Now, it's going to be a lot like what we do here, but it's going to be expanded a little bit outside of the borders of just the Badger State. The first episode we're going to have, which is going to kick off this spring, and we don't have an exact date yet, but we will get that to you in plenty of time to prepare. The first episode of the Patreon will be Velisca in good old Iowa, the Velisca Axe Murder House, coming up on our Patreon page, and we will have all the information out on that when that becomes more available to us 
as well. For but, those who don't know exactly what that means, that means a monthly rate so you can get extra content. This strain of Badger Bazaar will always continue to be there. So you can hear Mickey and I for free every three weeks or so like we're doing now. But we have, we will have, as Mickey said, some added content that will charge you a minimal, nominal monthly fee. Totally worth it. If you, of course, how could Just you Just to not? hear these on, sexy man. voices. Of course. Soothing. Talking about weird child murders Bizarre and shit such. with our twisted senses of humor. Right. Again, thanks a lot. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Thank you to all of you for uh, continuing to listen. Thank you so much. So we have a topic for you today which uh, obviously is very well-known, although I don't know if the specifics were as well-known or are as well-known. Yeah, I'm not sure people um, know the background of yeah, it. There's, it's, it's a really complicated story. There's some, some pretty deep issues going on. Heavy with this so and obviously this was it's a highly requested episode it's it's uh, well known throughout the country too it was talked about quite a bit it's hotly debated it was a popular uh subject on the tv news dramas 2020 60 minutes but we're not going to tell you what it was yeah we're just going to keep talking and keep keep (laughs) just describing it without (laughs) saying what it is of course we are talking about the slender man stabbings in Waukesha. I think a lot of a lot of the reasons why um, some of the specifics weren't that well known is because when you do the research on this, and there's a lot of stuff out there, obviously it's been on TV quite a bit, there's been a lot written about it, but there hasn't been a whole lot of comprehensive studies done about this, about how this happened with the three girls. And that is mainly because Waukesha County charges $5 a page for court documents. And obviously this is thousands of pages of court documents, right? And they charge $5 a page. It's a lot so, of money. To my knowledge, and I think there, it's not to my knowledge, there actually is, there's one book, one comprehensive book that's been written. That's all I found in the research about too, this. right? Which is crazy as much as we've heard about it. And it's, it's called Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls by an author named Kathleen Hale. And Kathleen is actually a Wisconsinite. She's She's from here. Uh, born and raised here, but she lives out in L.A. now. She's big time. And uh, so a lot of, of what we talk about today is based on her research. And a lot of, you know, and not, some of her research is based on what's already out there in terms of documentaries and things that were made before she wrote the book. But the book just came out in 2022, so it's very recent. And she does a wonderful job really getting the crux of what the hell was going on here. So we actually do have an invite also with Kathleen Hale to come on the show because I think we, it would be a really fascinating uh, discussion about this. So uh, obviously, as I said before, it seems like a pretty highly anticipated episode. So we're excited to talk about this today as well. So hopefully um, you get something out of it. But first of all, as we like to do every episode, there's a couple other things going on in Wisconsin that are kind of hot topic issues right now in the world of true crime, including this story here. Quote, woman in Arizona arrested for 1985 St. Croix Falls unsolved murder. Yvonne Menke, 45, was shot to death in the stairwell of her apartment on December 12, 1985. Mary Jo Bailey, now 80, has been the police's top suspect since then. So it says, after learning from police on the morning of December 12, 1985, that her 45-year-old mother, Yvonne Menke, had been killed, her 20-year-old daughter, Julie, said to St. Croix Falls police officer Mike Severson, I knew this was going to happen. St. Croix Falls, Saint Wisconsin. St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, right. yes. Yvonne's family members felt uneasy about a recent confrontation and a phone call from an unknown female caller the day before and long had their suspicions about who shot the mother of four. 
Finally, nearly 38 years after the murder in a St. Croix Falls apartment stairwell, the longtime suspect has been charged with first-degree murder. Mary Jo Bailey, 80, known as Mary Jo Lundsman at the time, is now jailed in Maricopa County, Arizona, awaiting extradition to Polk County, Wisconsin. Wow. It says the 39-page criminal complaint indicates Mary Jo was the top suspect from day one, 38 years ago, and investigators believe she killed Yvonne out of jealousy, stemming from a love triangle. The two women had been dating the same man, and he recently had chosen Yvonne over Mary Jo. Although the case grew cold in the months following the shooting, every Polk County Sheriff to take office since then has reopened it and made new efforts to solve it. And they never have. The latest round of police interviews done between late 2021 and early 2023 ended with investigators telling Mary Jo in January that she would likely be charged with murder. Now here's the interesting part of the story, and this is why this caught my eye. Freaking love triangles. God dang it. Listen to this. There are no new key pieces of evidence. No new key pieces of evidence in 38 years. They keep bringing it up and there's nothing new. But they arrested her now. Yeah. 38 years later. On what? On what grounds? I mean, why all of a sudden do they do they, so they, they have a right for a warrant? They decided now, apparently, that they have enough evidence. So it just comes that down to who's in place. Thirty year, thirty eight years later, this is what blows my mind. It just comes about down this. to the opinions of, of the people doing the work now. Wow, that's yeah, that's got to be confusing to her too. I would assume there's no key pieces of evidence cited in court papers, but a matching footprint along with the motive and various circumstances, gave the Polk County District Attorney enough to file the murder charge. Why wasn't that enough 38 years ago? Right. And if it is, yeah, if it is enough now, why wasn't it enough back then? The way we look at things shouldn't have changed that much. It says, it was a very cold and the ground was snow-packed on December 12, 1985, but police arriving at the shooting scene were able to take impressions of two footprints that appeared to come from Arctic cat snow boots. The day after the shooting, officers asked Mary Jo to show them her boots. Mary Jo showed them some footwear that she had within her residence. When asked if she had any other boots, Mary Jo stated she did. Mary Jo opened a door and retrieved a pair of Arctic Cat snowmobile boots. Should have gotten moon boots. Lab tests found the boots' tread pattern size and wear pattern were a match to the sulfur cast taken of the prints at the crime scene. Investigators believe Mary Jo called Yvonne's number a day or two before the murder to glean information about Yvonne's morning routine. Yvonne's daughter answered the phone at 6.50 a.m. right after her mother left work. According to the criminal complaint, the woman on the other end of the line asked her what time Yvonne leaves for work, and the daughter answered 6.40 to 6.45. Before the daughter could ask the caller who she was, the caller hung up. Yvonne's daughter in later interviews said she always felt guilty about the phone call information she provided to the unknown callers. So the main suspect... 38 years ago is the same main suspect today, and the evidence they had 38 years ago is the same evidence they have today. Nothing's changed. And they made the arrest now. Except their opinions. Yeah, I, I mean, wh- do, do we have any idea why they didn't make the arrest back then? They no just didn't idea. They had enough. I guess back then they thought they didn't have enough, and, and today different people look at it and think They think they do. So, I, I mean, obviously, this is still a developing story. I don't mean, I think it sounds like we're, we're kind of calling out the Polk County right. Sheriff's Department, and we don't mean to do that. We're, I'm just, just, we're, we're just going by the information by what we have here. Right, and we're speculating. So but nothing's changed except for the people right. looking at it. Right. So 38 years, this girl was living scot-free. She's now 80 years old, 
and she was arrested for murder. You know, I, I thought obviously it would be DNA. They'd find DNA evidence there, but something That's where I thought that they didn't have 40 years ago. Right. No. No. Nothing. Literally nothing, nothing except for the so, people's points of view. Kind of blown away by that. So we're obviously that's a, a, a case that we want to keep following because that's not quite Taylor's business, me. but a no. story that will continue. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Another article, another hot button issue that I keep hearing about says, quote, jury finds Wisconsin woman guilty of poisoning friend with eye drops. A jury found 39-year-old Jesse Krasinski. You Krasinski's can do it. I've tried. Oh. Oh, it did. Well, oh, I didn't. Mickey, that's I'm supposed saying to that out loud. Up, I'm on mic. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so a jury found 39-year-old Jesse Krzyzewski guilty of first-degree intentional homicide and two counts of theft in the 2018 murder of her family friend, Lynn Hernan. Probably not that good of a friend. No. The Waukesha um, County District Attorney's Office said Same in kind of friendships we're going to talk about early, later in the episode. And the same place, too, Waukesha County. Yeah, isn't that? I was going to well, say, there's a lot of bad shit that goes there. Hernan was found dead in her Pewaukee condo in October 2018 with crushed medication on her chest. According to a criminal complaint, Kurzuski called the police and said her friend wasn't conscious or breathing. Kurzuski said she was a family friend and had been checking in on Hernan daily. She had said there was a possibility Hernan was suicidal. The Waukesha County Medical Examiner ruled Hernan's death a homicide after discovering tetrahydrazoline, an ingredient in Visine. When investigators told Kurzuski that Hernan was poisoned and the scene was staged to look like a suicide, she said it was what Hernan wanted and she must have staged her suicide, according to the complaint. Krzyzewski later told investigators she brought Hernan a water bottle loaded with six bottles worth of Visine. Six yeah, bottles worth of Visine. There's the red flag right there. Detectives also eventually concluded Krzyzewski stole $290,000 from Hernan. So there is your motive. Huh. So she she drowns her, or she poisons her with Visine. No, drowning sounds like it could be the right term with the amount of eye drop fluid she had. Yeah, it probably. My God, you could fill a tub with that. And then she think. she crushed a bunch of pills and poured them on her chest to make it look like a sure. very poorly done suicide. Right. Yeah. Because, because like, what the hell is wrong when with I'm, these people? When I'm trying to overdose, I you know put it on my chest first so I can snort it. And I think it, I don't it mean to promote. Goes, it kind of goes back what what we're talking about today with with Waukesha County too is the planning was really kind of sophisticated. The execution, right? not so much. Right, and I mean, yeah, I don't mean to, you know, say if you're going to be a criminal, do a better job. How stupid are people when they come to this kind of stuff? If you're, if you're going to be that morbid and, and murderous, I don't know, I guess you're not right in the head and that's why you're doing it in the first place. I guess that's the point. It's it's crazy. Well, $300,000 is, is quite a bit of motivation there. Sure, but... But is Visine something that you would even think about? I know. Like, obviously she researched this, but I wouldn't even right. think a Visine right. would kill you. I, I mean, it's, think about that. it's kind of evil genius. She didn't fool anybody. She's been found. She's been convicted and found guilty, and she will uh, shocking likely go to jail for a long, long time. And the last thing I have, of course, as I do every time, I got to have a list, and I found this cool list here: ten roads around the U.S. that even locals find creepy at night. The U.S. is home to numerous haunted routes, even locals avoid at night due to reports of creepy tales and ghostly encounters. One of these. Three, oh, I thought you were going to say three. No, normally it is. Three right? or four, normally it's three half or four. are in Wisconsin. <laughs> this one. Seven out of no, eight. Just 10% here, buddy. Just one Damn, road. We're losing it. So, not as creepy as and usual. And that's my point. That's, we that's gotta, sad. We need to up the game Let's here a little bit. Let's start stepping up our out. shit. Let me go through this list here. Some of these you'll recognize. Some of these will probably be new to you. But, you know, these, these, these lists are always kind of fun. And I know that people like to hear them. 
Number 10, Clinton Road, West Milford, New Jersey. It says Clinton Road is reportedly New Jersey's most haunted road. Even the most skeptical driver will feel a chill down the spine when driving through this 10-mile road crossing a dense forest that creates an eerie ambiance. The area has many ghost stories, but one of the most famous legends involves a ghostly child who tosses back coins to drivers when thrown into the water beneath the bridge. The road is also rumored to be the site of satanic rituals and haunted by the spirit of a boy who tragically died in a car accident. Number nine, Mickey. I didn't this get is, the willies yet. This is one you're definitely going to recognize. Archer Avenue, oh, Illinois. We'll be talking about that. So there's an Archer Avenue in Wisconsin. Right. That was where Ed Gein's house was on. Yes. That's not what we're talking in about here. Plainfield. This is Archer Avenue in Illinois. Archer in Chicago, is, techni- well, outside of Chicago, technically, right? Right. Illinois is crossed by Route 66, the country's most famous road. Yet many people claim that driving along Archer Avenue, located near Chicago, is an unforgettable experience as it draws paranormal enthusiasts thanks to its paranormal activities. The most famous urban legend associated with Archer Avenue is that... Resurrection Mary. Of Resurrection Mary. According to the legend, a young woman named Mary, who died in a car accident while returning from a dance, haunts this creepy road. She is said to hitchhike along Archer Avenue before vanishing without a trace, leaving behind an eerie trail of sightings and unexplained events. From my research, she's supposed to be friendly enough, but she's kind of distant and cold, and cold as far as not answering questions that she's asked. But these the people who interact with her are 100% believing that she's there. So this, I mean... I guess like the Ridgeway Phantom. Right, well, yeah. right. And then, I mean, this is a urban legend that apparently exists all around the world, though. So people speculate on this kind of thing. This is a story that you'll hear in different parts of the world, as I said. But it's very well known. And Resurrection Mary, as Mickey mentioned in a little bit ago, is something that we will be covering on our Patreon later this early in our patreon episodes number eight and this is also something that we're going to cover eventually and i think i mentioned this once in one of our episodes boy scout lane wisconsin and this is in stevens point says boy scout lane is located in a remote area in portage county near stevens point the place was named after a tragedy in the last century when a troop of boy scouts was mysteriously killed when camping in the region there are different versions of the killer but all say the boys' ghosts haunt the road. Many people driving through the creepy road say they have a feeling of being watched. Others have reported children's handprints on their vehicles, while some have heard children laughing. And I'm an Eagle Scout, so that means that's the highest position in it, Boy Scout, so this one hits home. I kind of want to be part of this group. Oh, we're going to... As twisted as I am. We're going to go find the ghosts of that troop, troop, man. Yeah. Number seven, the Devil's Promenade, Missouri. The Devil's Promenade, located in southwest Missouri, has gained a reputation for being haunted due to numerous reports of reports of unexplained phenomena and eerie sightings. The road is surrounded by a desolate landscape, which helps to reinforce its haunted reputation. The most famous urban legends associated with it are the mysterious ghost lights that float above the nearby creek. Locals and visitors claim to witness these unexplained lights said to be the spirits of long-deceased miners or Native Americans. Number six, Shades of Death Road, New Jersey. Superstitious travelers might want to avoid Shades of Death Road in Warren County, New Jersey. The road is associated with tales of murders, accidents, and other tragic events along its stretches. Number five, another one that a lot of people are going to know, Stanley Hotels Access Road, Colorado. There are many haunted hotels across the globe, but only a few have a haunted road. The Stanley Hotels Access Road in Colorado has gained a haunted reputation the shining. due to its close connection to the famous Stanley Hotel, 
which inspired Stephen King's novel, The Shining. The hotel itself is rumored to be haunted, and its access road is believed to be frequented by spirits and supernatural entities. The most famous tales involve sightings of a ghostly apparition, strange lights, and eerie sounds along the road. Number four, The Great River Road in Louisiana. I think I've heard of that. Which is the same Great River Road, I believe. Isn't it Highway 35? I think we that covered goes that. goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. The Great River Road in Louisiana is another road with many creepy tales. The road runs alongside the mighty Mississippi River, which has seen its fair share of tragic events over the years, including devastating floods and deadly accidents. The most famous legends revolve around sightings of ghostly apparitions near the riverbanks, unexplained lights hovering over the water, and eerie sounds echoing through the marshes. And we're actually going to be covering several stories revolving hauntings along the Great River Road in Wisconsin, which is our towards lacrosse when we cover hauntings associated with the Black Hawk War. Number three, Highway 666, which is now Route 491 in Colorado, New Mexico, Satan, and Utah. Highway 666, now known as Route 491, earned its haunted reputation due to many tragic events. The association with the number 666, often linked to the devil, sparked superstitions and tales around the road. Reports of strange phenomena, ghostly apparitions, and unexplained encounters have further contributed to its haunting allure. One of the most famous tales is about sightings of a phantom truck that chases drivers along the road, disappearing without a trace. From what I've learned, that number has roots to paganism. That's where its association with the devil and evil, it's all based on the paganism concept. So that's if you want to research that, that's where you start. Number two, Stroudsburg Road, Pennsylvania. The Stroudsburg Road. Easy for you to say. Right. Is arguably the creepiest road in Pennsylvania. The road is linked to tragic accidents and mysterious disappearances, adding to its haunted reputation. The most famous story among locals is a ghostly figure known as the Lost Lady. According to legend, a woman, a, clever name. a woman tragically died in a car accident on the road, and her spirit now appears to drivers seeking help in finding her way home. Seems very Resurrection Mary-ish. Yeah. Right, like I said, that, that concept, that mm-hmm. legend kind of exists in many places, in many forms. And number one, Seven Sisters Road in Nebraska. Seven Sisters Road in Nebraska gained its haunted reputation as one of the creepiest roads in the U.S. due to a tragic story about a group of nuns. According to the famous myth, the nuns were involved in a deadly accident on the road and their spirits now roam the area seeking redemption or peace. Visitors and locals have reported sightings of ghostly figures dressed in nun attire and there are reports of weird occurrences along the road, making it a popular destination for those interested in visiting Haunted places. Keep your eyes peeled. We're going to all these places, right? Every single one. Yeah, baby. So you're up on pop culture and internet culture as much as anyone I know, Mick. You co-host a podcast about it, right? I really do. Yeah. What was what was your knowledge, if any, about Slender Man before 2014? I mean, this was... An international sensation, right? They couldn't right. get enough of it for a while. Right. I mean, I have children in my life, but even they were maybe as unversed in it as I was. I'd heard of it. I knew it was a digital concept, like video games took advantage of the concept. I didn't necessarily know the very beginning origin of it, but I knew that it was a thing that younger people, because they're typically the trendsetters, they were the ones who were getting caught up in it and then 
books and video games and all that, and movies were getting based on it, but I didn't know it was such a strong thing that it could, you know, coerce people into right. murdering one of their so-called friends. As dark as I know people can be, I didn't know that I right. had that kind of power. I, I had I had heard of it, too. You know, by 2014, I was familiar with the name, vaguely familiar with, with the image of him, you know, a tall, faceless man. It sounds along the lines of, like, extraterrestrial or paranormal, you know, mm-hmm. like this, like you said, tall, dark shadowy figure but I, you know i was i was familiar with it just by osmosis really just you know just by seeing things miscellaneous online memes and such but nothing you know real specific about it but i mean now i do you know my kids went through a big slender man phase my middle son was slender man a couple of years ago for halloween you know and, and they'll watch some of that stuff on youtube slender man siren head you know, my my youngest is is really big into horror characters. So I mean, and he's six years old. But so. with with the parents your kids have, they're allowed to look into this oh, right, darker right. stuff a little more than a lot of children are. And and he's and right now he's all about I'm putting Star all Wars, the blame on you, you know? dark sure, twisted yes, people. Yeah, yes, it's my and and he, it's my fault. He loves Pennywise, you know, and he, they <laughs> well, play your wife, games. Your like, wife's got a dark side too, so yeah, it's both of you. <laughs> they play games like Hello Neighbor and Granny, which is all about killing kids. You know, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's Really, some odd shit out well, there. Well, I mean, if you can't, you should introduce to them early. Otherwise, they're not going to understand. Right, and and Just there's like drinking in Wisconsin. And 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 Rod, you know, there's this game called Rod where he's like this killer ice cream man, and he like sure. kidnaps kids and turns them into ice cream, and then. <laughs> If that's not a part of every day, every there's weird shit out there. That should there, be man. a part of every kid's life. I yeah, mean, it right. just should be. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff out there, and it's geared towards younger audiences, and but it's th- it's there. You know, to the but, point though, like my mom was always painfully obvious, like about sex and all that stuff. And you know what? The more honest parents are, and we'll get into this later on, that the more ob- painfully honest and willing to talk about it the parents are with their children, the more this stuff won't be an right, issue. Right. The the trick is knowing. Right. right, and talking to your children about it and being willing the, to. The trick is being able to understand that these are fictional stories. They're right. fictional characters. But uh, you, but you want the kids to learn it from a trustworthy source. Yeah. That's the point. And, and and but that's where you know some of this stuff a bit of a gray line emerges with a lot of people talk about Slender Man and just exactly what Slender Man is. And this goes back to obviously to online culture. Now, the first posting involving Slender Man online was on June 10th, 2009. It was on an online forum called Something Awful. Now, Something Awful is a general discussion forum, right? It's various subject matters, some comedy. You see a a list of discussions, and you you click on the one that you want. So it was introduced on a website, a speaky horror website called Creepypasta, in an online humor forum called Something Awful. So the forum was on the website called Creepypasta, but it's actually called Something Awful, as Scott said. So Something Awful was running a Photoshop contest, right? Just a Photoshop contest in which contestants would submit. They were supposed to submit a paranormal image. So utilizing Photoshop, you create a paranormal-looking image, and you submit it to this contest. With a story behind it. And may the, may the best one win, right? So, well, a user with the screen name of Victor Surge entered two black and white images into this contest. Artist Eric Knudsen is actually who it was, but that, that, that's his online screen name, Victor Surge. The first photo was a group of kids teenagers walking they're facing the camera and in the background is this mysterious figure very tall right much taller than the kids wearing what seems to be a black suit a white shirt and a very white nondescript face almost as if he's wearing a mask 
The second photo is children playing on a playground. Right? One of these children, who is clearly the focal point of the photo, is climbing up the stairs on a slide. She's facing the camera. She's smiling. And there are other kids playing at the playground. And in the background again is this very subtle, very tall figure with a white, nondescript face. Now, on the photo, on this photo where she's climbing up, this, this girl is climbing up the slide, there's a stamp in the upper right corner that reads, quote, City of Sterling Libraries, Local Studies Collection, unquote, with a crest in the middle. So it looks very authentic, right? And with the photo is text that reads, quote, One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished, and for what is referenced to as the Slender Man. Deformities cited as filmed effects by officials, fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13th, 1986. So what he did, what Eric Knutson did, under the screen name Victor Surge, is he entered this contest, and he made this photograph with these kids in it, and he, and he photoshopped this weird, creepy-looking guy in the background with this crest stamped on it so it looked real. It looked like it was an authentic, almost like an evidence photograph with a paragraph stating, basically telling the reader that these children vanished a week later. Which sounds very real the yes. way it's worded and just kind of random and from out of nowhere. So it's like, as I read it, I'm like, is that real? Is that based on something? I mean, this, this guy did a good job creating this thing from out of nowhere. So this is why Slenderman... The Slenderman meme is oftentimes compared to Blair Witch. If you remember the Blair Witch right. Project, that which was a movie, creeped everyone right. out when it first came because out because it was made to look real. And it searched, and and they didn't release the fact that it wasn't until well after the. There fact. were people that watched this movie, right? Funded by Hollywood, looked like a low budget movie because it was marketed as found footage. Right, right. It was found footage, and it. Sure looked like it was. And it right. And they didn't let you know that it wasn't until well after the fact, as I said. So I believed it. So you I got caught up. You, people got caught up in Blair Witch. They thought it was real. Some people, you know, there was a gray area there. Is this real? Is this a Hollywood movie? Right, what is going know. on here? Right. And it's the same kind of thing that was going on with Slenderman here. It's back when we were not as quick to be skeptical too. Now like now you just don't believe anything because everything's BS now. <laughs> But back then, you kind of started, things weren't the way they are now, and you kind of believed what you first heard. And this is 2009, you know, right. we're, it wasn't we're talking that long almost ago. 15 years ago. Right. So this was, it was a contest. It was a Photoshop contest that this guy entered, but it was made to look real, and it, was, it had a very authentic look to it, and it blew up. People were all over this story, right? Slenderman is now popping up all over the place. People take the story. And the image, and they create more and more around it. And they would copy and paste the story onto horror forums all over the internet. And they just keep adding on. Right. He, there was actually a second photo that he, he also had another caption with that second photo that said, quote, we didn't want to go, we didn't want to kill them, unquote. 1983 photographer unknown presumed dead. So again, it makes it look like kind of an evidence photo, right? Like the last photo taken before right. Slender Man comes. It's based on something real, supposedly. But it's not. So there's sites all over the place where people have taken this Slender Man character and they've just added on to it, right? And they repost these stories all over the place. And they're called, they're, they're creepy stories and they copy and paste them, 
leading to the name creepy pastas, right? You're copying and pasting creepy stories, and it just kind of became bastardized as just add on, creepy add pastas, on, right? And there's different versions or just further stories, including this original concept. So Slender Man becomes a creepy pasta, as the premise is posted and it's reposted all over the internet. With people adding their own flair to it, it becomes very, very famous. It takes the internet by storm in 2009, 2010. Right? And Eric Knutson, he said his inspiration for this whole concept, which was amazing, obviously, because people were buying in quickly. He said his inspiration came from Stephen King's The Mist. Also from H.P. Lovecraft, William S. Burroughs, and video games Silent Hill and Resident Evil. He later told Know Your Meme website, character intent was, quote, something whose motivations can barely be comprehended and causes unease and terror in a general population, unquote. Later on in 2011, Knudsen, just from the fame of this whole story, he even earned his own page on the Creepypasta website. So he blew up just from this. I mean, what an imagination to come up with this. And unfortunately, bad things tend to happen in these cases. He also took influence from Billy Corgan. Right. Of the Smashing Pumpkins, which I thought was interesting. Because if you think about it, Slender Man kind of does look like Billy Corgan right. a little bit. You right. know, tall and thin and, and bald head. And I love Smashing Pumpkins, but a lot of their concepts of their music is a little yeah. dark. So, you know, Slender Man, Knutson pretty much lost agency with the character, right? Because so many people would copy and paste it. They'd well, add just, their own it, stuff it, to it. It, it. The mythology around him isn't really uniform because it changes, right? right. And it just evolved into its own concept. But... You know, as we said, most of the time he's pictured as very tall and thin, up to 14 feet sometimes, usually wearing a black suit, as we said, often with a tie, a blank white face, no features on his face. His arms are very long, almost like tentacles, and sometimes he has tentacles protruding from his back as well. And for the most part, he stalks children. Yep. He preys on children. But his antics are very mysterious, as in those first two photographs that we talked about like he's pictured in the background and those kids wind up going missing right but we don't know exactly what happened to them so the stories aren't necessarily graphic you know as if they illustrate him murdering these children they kind of don't but for the most part it's up to interpretation as a result of this just evolving on its own there there technically is no canon so it got a life of its own it's, it's said to disembowel people, keeping internal organs in bags. If someone kills for him, they become proxies, and families will be safe from him as long as they continue to kill for him. He also is set to live in a castle, and the people who kill for him aren't supposed to live with him at that point. Right. Because the story was, was mysterious and was open to interpretation, it fueled his popularity because it was, just, it was so easily adaptable. Like people just added what they wanted. They kind of created their own kind of Slender Man. And soon there were video games, there were books, there were graphic novels. There was a, a really popular YouTube series called Marble Hornets, very Blitter Witchy, by the way, and countless other platforms along with thousands of creepypastas featuring Slender Man. Rolling Stone magazine reported a fictional doctor's note posted Included explicit and graphic accounts of Slenderman victims dating back to the 1990s. So even they, these major uh, mainstream magazines were even getting caught up in it. Halloween costumes, everything. Anything creepy that could be associated with this, people took advantage of. A couple of the video games that were known in Minecraft, there's three tall characters called Endermen. They have drawn comparisons due to their Slender bodies and a similar name. They were first released in September 14th, 2011. I mean, characters in these very famous games were even 
based on this whole concept. One called Slender the Arrival, which was released on March 26, 2013 and developed by Parsec Productions. And another game called Slender the Eight Pages was downloaded by over 2 million times in the first month. The first month alone. Later released in September 2014 on Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. It was also released in March 2015 on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Released in October 2015 on Wii U and released in June 2019 as a Nintendo Switch port. So this game just evolved and went to all the different video game stations. It becomes a pop culture icon. Exactly. I mean, it's all over the place. and Even in 2018, it even inspired a movie starring Joey King called Slender Man. You know, again, internet culture-wise, this heyday was from 2009 to 2014. And it just right? blew up. And it just blew up after that. So right in the middle of this time period, in 2011, two elementary school girls in Waukesha were forming a friendship. Morgan Geyser and Peyton Leitner, both nine years old, started sitting with each other on the school steps during recess. The friendship seemed a little odd to those that knew them. Their personalities were very different. Their interests were different. Morgan liked to read about serial killers and wore a lot of black. Sounds like us now. (laughs) Peyton liked boy bands and wore rainbow colors and butterfly wings. More more typical of a teenage girl. So, and Morgan was thought of, you know, quote, weirdish, unquote, by her peers. Her teachers described her as withdrawn and very quiet. Peyton was called by her teachers as a goody-goody. And Morgan would later on admit that Peyton was her only friend for a long time. Peyton had no issues talking to anybody regardless of, you know, how weird they seemed. Peyton saw Morgan eating alone at lunch, she'd sit with her. She saw Morgan sitting alone at recess, she'd sit with her. And they became very good friends, right? With Peyton becoming a bit of a, almost a, a protector for Morgan, understanding that there was some weirdness there with Morgan that Peyton could see, and she was okay with that. They actually both shared a love of cats, which Peyton often expressed by actually going to school dressed as one. And in this day and age, when people identify as different things, kind of leaves your mind It's kind of being done right now, isn't right. it? Right, yeah. At least back then, I don't think they had litter boxes for them, but yeah, that's a whole other subject. So now as, as they grew a bit older, Peyton became more popular. She was sprouting socially. She was gaining more friends. And Morgan kind of went the other way. She was becoming more withdrawn. Other kids would avoid her. Teachers would notice other kids that would they would roll their eyes or snicker when she started talking in class. There was bullying going on. Even teachers would describe her as odd or attention-seeking, which typically would happen to somebody who doesn't feel like they fit in. I mean, as we all know. So other than other than Peyton, Morgan didn't really have any friends. And in fact, in fifth grade in 2012, Peyton was invited by by a group of other girls to be in their club, but only if she stopped being friends with Morgan. And Peyton said, no, I choose Morgan. Just to go further into Morgan's tendency to be a little odd or peculiar, teacher Jill Weidenbaum said she'd even bark like a dog and catch insects and throw them at other students. She was once suspended for bringing a hammer to school. She was also a big Harry Potter fan and believed she could talk to her favorite character, Voldemort, and actually referred to him when she would talk to other people as Voldy, like he was her friend. So she was not... Carrying herself the way everybody else A little does. out there. Yeah. Right? Now, Morgan's parents noticed this, right? They were not oblivious to it. They saw that she spent most of her time alone and that she didn't have a lot of close relationships with other kids, but they actually saw that 
as a sign of strength. To that point, a lot of times in these cases with people who are a little different, she was actually, she had above average IQ. She got decent grades and she was described as creative and artistic. Her parents, Matt and Angie, as Scott mentioned, they were still together, but the mother had been recently laid off from a job at a local hospital. So they were in her life. They knew about her tendencies, but everything seemed fine at the time. They didn't really read much into these things, right? Kids are kids. And just like when when Morgan was three and she ran into her parents' room saying her room was haunted and there were ghosts that were biting her and pulling her hair, they told her to go back to bed and it was okay and that you were just dreaming. They didn't really read much into this stuff. And they didn't discuss with her what might be going on. Which is kind of really, um, I think, where our first conundrum really comes in this story because Morgan's father, Matt, is schizophrenic. Diagnosed. And his child would be 40 times more likely than the average person to also become schizophrenic. But they didn't, they didn't see it necessary to act on anything with Morgan here even though Matt himself had a similar experience when he was seven years old of seeing ghosts in his room. He actually spent four months at Winnebago Mental Health Institute diagnosed with, quote, psychotic spectrum disorder known as schizophrenia. These disorders are linked to fragmentation of the plane of reality until completely broken. They make people prone to their major delusions, and it was revealed to run in that family with the father even having been hospitalized at the age of 14 or 15, Multiple sources agreed it was a very rare for that age, though. Now, schizophrenia itself is rare. Right. Less than 1% of the population has it. But it's also very powerful. Childhood schizophrenia is extremely Even rare. Even more rare, exactly. So they weren't, that's not where their thinking was, apparently. But there, there was a reason Morgan didn't seem lonely, because she wasn't. She had plenty of friends. It's just that only she could see them. hallucinations, auditory and visual, voices in her head, a girl named Maggie, a boy named Sev, who, as Morgan described, looked like an anime character with hair covering up one eye. These were Morgan's friends, and they were very real to her. And at that age, she doesn't necessarily know that they're not real. And and so that's why, as you said, they, they serve the purpose of friendship, and so she didn't necessarily need to reach out to other people. And through all this, Peyton stayed with her, really physically stayed with her as her friend. When Morgan would play tag with Maggie and Sev, Peyton would play along. Think about that. She had to have some idea. She's that playing was tag weird. with people that aren't there, and she would play along. And I think we all knew people growing up who had an imaginary friend because it's just, it's an, it's, it's a defense mechanism. It's you know. People have insecurities, so kids develop that kind of stuff. Usually it's harmless, and it doesn't develop past the age of, you know, past adolescence. But in these cases, we're starting to understand it has a lot to do with mental incapabilities. So she would play tag with invisible friends, and Peyton would play along. When Morgan would tell her about voices in her head, Peyton would say that she heard them too. Just so going along. She's telling her, I don't care that you're weird. She's you're, being supportive of my her friend. friend. Exactly. Right. That's that's a good friend. Because she, she had to wonder what was going on. Like, nobody else I know deals with this stuff. That's kind of strange. So in the book Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls by Kathleen Hale. Again, this is really the only 
comprehensive study that's been done on this crime from start to finish. As we said, part of that is because Waukesha is really difficult to work with um, and really difficult to get sources from because they charge a lot of money for court documents. And a lot of authors don't want to pay that. And, you know, think about that, $5 a page. Yeah, the price of everything has gone up, but that seems a little... Kathleen Hale did the research. She she did this on her own. She did this on spec. She, she paid for... Uh, the documents that she needed, and she spent many, many hours talking to Morgan Geyser. She didn't talk to Peyton Leitner's family, but she spent a lot of time with Morgan. Some of the research, obviously, that we talk about in this episode is is from this book, and I want to read a passage that's on page 20, and it's it's pretty much in the beginning of the book, and it talks about Morgan's parents, who Mickey said before their name were Angie and Matt. And it says, quote, A few months after Morgan's parents started dating, Angie took Matt on a 10-day trip to Seattle. They drank Seattle's best coffee. They ate pierogies. They got matching tattoos of Celtic knots, which signified eternity. They promised never to leave each other. But when Morgan was two years old, Matt tried to kill himself. He spent two weeks comatose in the ICU. Depression and anxiety are ancillary symptoms of schizophrenia. Years later, despite this trauma, or perhaps because of it, Morgan's parents could not bring themselves to see that Morgan was unraveling. When Morgan told Angie that she saw colors, Angie, who worked in healthcare, reassured her daughter that it was just a migraine. But my head doesn't hurt, Morgan thought. And it happens all the time. Unquote. So it's almost like mom and dad, knowing dad's history, were in denial and didn't want to admit that their kid might be dealing with the same things. You know, it's really hard, and we talk about all the time, Mick, about passing judgment on people. Because we're dealing, we, we talk about scenarios that we can't imagine being in. Right. Right? So no, nobody, nobody's passing blame here. Nobody's passing judgment here. But the notion that the parents didn't know what was going on needs to be addressed yes yeah i mean if if mom and dad know that dad had these issues and that it, it's genetically passed on this is something they should have addressed and recognized in their daughter maybe been looking for even before she showed signs so yeah it, and instead of hiding it from the kid at least find a way to introduce it to her so that she can understand what she's going through, knowing that she's not like everyone else. You know, they, they should have helped her deal with it as opposed to just pretending it wasn't a thing, in my humble opinion. Matt and Angie have been... Scrutinized. and They've been scrutinized, and they've been very gracious in terms of... They've worked with the... Do- There's been documentaries made about this. There's been a two-hour 2020 episode... You know, where are they now? They've been open about, and honest about it. Yes, so, of course. So they, 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 they obviously have regrets and everything. So they, They're not hiding. No, and as, as it goes with parenting, <laughs> there's no guidebook. There's no, you know, this is the best way to do it, especially when it comes to something like this that most people don't deal with. As we said, the rarity of childhood schizophrenia is it's, it's, it's one in a million type thing. So people don't necessarily know how to do it because we don't understand it at that point not having maybe dealt with anybody who's had these issues so you, you can't necessarily blame the parents too much but they sh- they should have gotten a stranglehold on it recognizing that the dad had this issue and again this is just my opinion i'm not trying to pass judgment because who knows how i'd have handled it it's it's a horrible situation but as they must know now there's a different way they could have handled it i guess it's the point you can't look at this story and talk about this story uh 
in full effect, like we're going to be going doing today. And when you find out all the things that was going on with Morgan, you can't not talk about how her mom and dad didn't know, or not necessarily that they didn't know why they chose to hide her dad's condition from her. Right. and It but needs to be addressed. As you listen to this and think about it, try to put yourself in their point of view. And try to put yourself in their shoes because this is not an easy subject to deal with when your child is doing something that dad's been through and it must have been horrific for him. The urge to hide it from her is natural. Like, we don't know. We don't. I mean, they, they probably were in denial themselves, not wanting their daughter to have to deal with that. So it was them not understanding or wanting to deal with the fact that she might have it as much as anything, which is understandable because they love their daughter, you know? So. Before you pass too much judgment, try to put yourself in their shoes and understand while they didn't necessarily make the right decisions, you, you can maybe get why they did what, what they did. And just try to remember that as you think about it. Now, in the fall of 2013, Peyton and Morgan are our best friends. And they're students now at Horning Middle School in Waukesha. And at the bus stop, Morgan would see a new girl, Anissa Wire. And they began sitting next to each other on the bus. They wound up living, they actually lived in the same condo complex. In the Sunset Apartments. And Anissa had recently switched school districts. So she's like the new kid in school, right? She's the new girl at Horning. And she had gone to a different elementary school than the kids at Horning. So she didn't know anybody. Her parents had just gone through a divorce. She was shuffling between her mom and her dad's house. Uh, throughout the week, her home life pretty much sucked, right? As with any kid who has to watch their parents split up like that. Now, mom was quite clearly going through a depression of her own at this time, and dad's her dad's first wife, who was also the mother of Anissa's two half-siblings, was dying due to a medical condition. So dad's got a lot on his plate. Parents were named William and Christy. Mother worked nights but picked up her daughter after school and waited with her until the father would pick her up after work. Anissa herself was described by other acquaintances as thin-skinned. She later told police she'd stand up for Morgan once they became friends on occasion as she was, quote, like a prime target for bullies at school. So Anissa, you know, being a little thin-skinned, a little sensitive, but having the ability to stand up for herself, be a little tougher, she would stand up for Morgan while she was getting picked on. So th- there was an immediate bonding that went on. And it sounds like Anissa was kind of left up to her own devices as well. Right. So right? she, she kind of learned how to be tough, and she kind of stood up uh, for Morgan. She also reportedly later told police she can be a little that Morgan could be a little dopey and forget what she's saying in the middle of a sentence a lot because, like, she says she hears voices too, quote-unquote. So she stops doing after-school activities and nobody seems to notice, right? Nobody seems to ask if she's doing okay. Because her parents, again, are going through a divorce. Now, I, I will say, dad seems pretty legit. You know, I don't think this is a case of of neglect or bad parenting at all. But, you know, I mean, both her parents were going through it at this time. And they're dealing too, with their own right? crap. So sometimes, but unfortunately, the kid gets a little neglect. Life is pretty hard sometimes, right. people. Right? Right. I mean, and as pe- we all know by a certain age, people can only be spread so thin. Right. But it's during this time that Anissa spends a lot of time on her iPad, taking care of herself. School issued iPad, by the way, and is reading a lot 
of creepypastas, specifically about a character named Slenderman. Now in school, as Mickey said, a little thin-skinned, she's a bit of a bully. She has a tendency to become physical and hit people. But her and Morgan really start hitting it off. There was even mention of an incident where a boy got too close to Morgan and Wire actually punched him kind of hard, making him cry. So as is usually the case with bullies, they've been bullied, and this is a self-defense mechanism they develop, and they, you know, kind of... They take the first step going forward. So that's kind of what we're talking about with this particular individual. So now her and Morgan have this common connection, right, of scary stories, horror stories. They bond over these. Possibly things going on in their head that other kids don't deal with. They become fast friends. Anissa tells Morgan about Creepypasta.com and Slenderman, and Morgan is immediately transfixed by it. She even recognizes Slenderman, or it reminds her of a certain recurring vision she had several years prior when she remembered a vision of a shadowy figure peering at her in mirrors. So Morgan starts reading everything she can on Slenderman, looking at everything online, looking at the images on things like DeviantArt.com, various forums, talking about it with Anissa every day on the bus that he lives in a mansion in the woods called the Slender Mansion. And hey, Wisconsin has a lot of woods, right? Maybe that mansion is here. But Anissa and Peyton, on the other hand, they didn't hit it off so much, right? Again, not a lot in common. Anissa seems a little too assertive for Peyton, maybe a little too harsh for her liking. And eventually Peyton kind of starts feeling like a third wheel, around Morgan and Anissa. Peyton would even say later on, quote, everything went downhill, unquote, when Anissa came along. Quote, I didn't like her at all. I just hung out with her because I knew Morgan really loved her as a friend, but she was always cruel to me. I feel like she was jealous that Morgan was friends with me and her, unquote. So obviously there was bad feelings between those two right off the bat. There was competition for Morgan's attention. And she also notices that Morgan, who was kind of always the leader in her and Peyton's relationship, is much more submissive to Anissa in their friendship. So, you know, again, Anissa is kind of illustrating a a bit of a domineering personality here in the eyes of Peyton. You know, but Peyton doesn't like Slenderman. She's not into the horror thing. She asked Morgan to stop talking to her about it because she's starting to have nightmares to the point where, where Peyton's mother had to go online and prove to Peyton that he's not real. So hurt. it sounds like those reactions are a little more quote-unquote normal. Sure, Whereas you know, the we, other two are dealing with mental issues possibly, and so that's why they're a little quicker to buy into it and think it's real. You know, we got we have to, you always have to remember that we're dealing with 12-year-olds here, right? Right. So and Easily influenced, all of us at that age. The friendship between Peyton and Morgan is now pretty strained. So Morgan tells Anissa about her voices and that she thinks that she has seen Slenderman in the past, which is a bit of a risk because Anissa might have been turned off by that. Morgan didn't know. But of course she wasn't. It was exciting for Anissa. She liked it. So now we we pretty much have a full-blown obsession with Slenderman for these two girls. And it was reported that the trio, typically they hung out together whether the two of them liked each other or not. 
they were considered not popular, with Peyton being the most sociable of the three and Morgan and Anissa basically being outsiders in general, which is, you know, the, the more they feel like that, the more they're going to go in their own direction. And with their obsession with Slenderman, they were starting to go down a path that obviously leads to a dark place. So Slenderman is all they talk about, right? It's all Morgan and Anissa talk about. It's all they think about. It's all they read about. It's all they look at online about. Morgan tells Anissa that she sees him, and Anissa tells her that she saw him too. And there's something in Slenderman lore called Slender Sickness. And that's kind of a sudden onset of paranoia, nervousness, and trembling. That means that Slender has you in his sights now, right? Now he's stalking you. And Morgan would be doing this on the bus. She'd be trembling. And her and Anissa would attribute that to Slenderman. And now it seems to be, you know, almost becoming kind of like a role-playing game. Like they're taking on the personalities of somebody that's being stalked by a character. Well, I think it's more of a game than just someone who's taken over their outlook. Like like a deity almost at this point. Like someone who's controlling their thoughts and actions. And Anissa would start trembling sometimes too, but Morgan would call her out on that because she didn't really believe Anissa was trembling. Or she didn't really believe that Anissa was also seeing Slenderman, and Anissa confessed that she she didn't really do it. She said, yeah, I did it because I didn't want you to feel insane because you saw something that I didn't. So it almost feels like Anissa is kind of encouraging Morgan's symptoms of a veiled reality. As if she's pushing her in that direction. It's kind of like Anissa knows something is up with Morgan's inability to, to really tell the difference between reality and what's not real, and she's kind of playing that up to her. Again, kind of like a game. It's what it seems like here. Right. Well, like she's a puppet master along those lines. So they get into this pretty deep, right? Because Morgan starts to show signs of slender sickness. Now Morgan feels they're in danger or that their families are in danger. And now they come up with this notion that in order to save their families from Slender Man, they need to become one of Slender Man's proxies. In December 2013th, Morgan came up with the idea to sacrifice someone to become one of the proxies. So to become a proxy, you, you basically become his servant and do his bidding, right? And in order to do that, you need to kill someone. As we alluded to earlier. And it has to be someone that Morgan loved. And the only person in the world that Morgan loved outside of her own family was Peyton Leitner. Morgan would later admit to police talking about the plan for months, and he even created a code. Quote, like for knife, we used cracker. For the killing, we would use words like itch. It was a flawless plan, actually, unquote. They, the, the whole point was that they wanted to, they were so bought into this that they wanted to prove that Slenderman was real, so this sacrifice was going to do that. And that's become their reality at this point. This is, this is their logic. This is their way of thinking, that they're going to carry this out and prove to the world that Slenderman is a real concept. Now, both girls have continually blamed the other one for coming up with this plan, and they still do today. The only two that know are those two, right? The only two that know that are Morgan and Anissa. Who came up with the plan to kill Peyton? And even as adults, they're still not willing to admit it was them. But either way, they start devising a plan to murder Peyton. So in their grand plan to become Slender Man's proxy, they would murder Peyton and then go to Slender Mansion, which they concluded somehow 
was in Nicolet National Forest, which is three and a half hours away by car. They're 12 years old. They don't drive. Well, and that's just proof that reality is not a concept anymore, that David came up with this. Oh, well, he must live in Nicolet National Forest. Right. So they would have to walk it. That's a long walk. <laughs> Which would be like hundreds of hours. That's a long right? drive. And so there they would live in Slender Mansion with all of Slender's other proxies. And it takes us two and a half hours to drive to Rhinelander, which is in the middle of Nicolet, and that's in car. Yeah, well, that's walk there from is. Waukesha and see yeah. how long that takes Especially you. if you don't know where the hell you're going. So they would get to Nicolet National Forest, and in this massive forest they would somehow find this mansion, and they would live there with Slender's other proxies and do his bidding, which, if you think about it, would be to kill people. Yes? Yeah. So they're signing up to be assassins. Because that's, that's what he does. Or murderers. And that's what yeah. he wants. To these 12-year-old, obviously impressionable, easily influenced girls, it's not occurring to them, as it does to the rest of us, that murder is not right. It's, it's, it's very cut and dry for the most of us that murder is not something you do. And yet to these girls, they're like, I'm going to sign up so that I can do this going forward. Obviously, there's something going on here. So over the next few months... Over the next few months. This was not impulsive. This was not, you know, someone quick pushing someone off a ledge. This was a five-month endeavor. It's premeditated. This was a five-month plan of Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire planning to kill Peyton Leitner. Now they... They devised that they would have a sleepover, and Anissa would stab Peyton in the neck when she was sleeping. They settled on Morgan's 12th birthday to execute the sacrifice, and the night before, they each girl packed a bag for the journey to Slenderman's castle. Included a bottled water, granola bars, and clothes. Anissa also included a photo of her family to remember them by, which tells you they knew they were going for good. So they were going to have a birthday party for Morgan, right? She's turning 12. It would be just the three of them have a sleepover at Morgan's house on May 30th, 2014. And Peyton had no idea she was the target of a nasty-ass sacrifice. And as Mickey said, they had code words to talk about their plan in public. They, Like on the bus, they basically derived their own language to speak about this in front of other people. That's how premeditated this all was. They would draw pictures of what they thought it would look like, people holding knives, bodies bleeding from their torsos. They checked out library books on crime and punishment. They checked out library books on crime scene investigation. They conducted Google searches for how to cover up a murder. And can you get arrested for killing someone in self-defense? So even more of a planned manipulation here, where they're thinking about maybe making it look like it was self-defense. These are 12-year-olds. And even the fact that, like I said, Anissa, was, she packed a family photo to remember them by, assuming she's never going to see them again, because once they found this castle, they had their new life ahead of them. They These girls had all this planned out at the age of 12. They made birthday invites for Peyton to respond to, which of course she did. They emailed each other about the fun things that they would do that night. As Mickey said, they made out lists of what to pack on their long trick to Nicolay National Forest, and they wrote goodbye letters to their parents. And Morgan also emailed Anissa to delete her browsing history. There is no question, zero, that they did not know right from wrong. They thought of everything. 
I mean, to some degree, they sound like trained killers already. Delete. At the age of 12. Delete your browsing history. Right. I don't know that I think of that, and I'm, I like to overanalyze stuff. Holy that cow. is clear evidence. That's thinking of, of every little detail. This ain't right. Right. We know right, exactly. Why are you hiding that if you don't if you don't know that it's not right? They knew. Exactly. The level of planning here is diabolical. It's sadistic. The execution was that of a couple of 12-year-olds, yes. Sure, because that's the, their age. But the planning, that goes back to their state of mind, which seems quite clear and to I, me. And I do believe as far as you know, entitlement with the younger generations these days, there's a lot more of it than there was when we were growing up. But I do believe the kids are developed a little quicker too, not just physically but also mentally. You know, to some degree, as far as what they're exposed to, social media and all that stuff. So, I mean, when I was 12, I'm not sure I'm thinking all this shit is what I'm saying. I was more ignorant. They're researching the criminal justice system and deleting their browser history. Do you think of any of that at the age of 12? I mean, you weren't thinking of murder, hopefully, but... I was pretending I was Boba Fett. Right, and we we still were afraid of cooties, which, I mean, that's a ridiculous concept too, but... I mean, we were just more simple back then. and So now the night of the party finally comes, right? Five months in the making. Friday night, May 30th, 2014. Five months in the making, and nobody said, hey, maybe let's not do this. Maybe we're going too far. Let's maybe not talk so foolish, right? So the party starts at Skateland in Waukesha. They're roller skating as normal 12-year-old girls would do on any birthday. I'm not a 12-year-old girl anymore. I mean, I'm not a 12-year-old girl, and I want to do that right now. Yeah. We could probably arrange that. All right. Skate City still we'll exists. We'll head out here in a little bit. So, and after that, they go back to Morgan's. They have cake and ice cream, all the normal stuff. They played The Sims, and they went to bed. They played with their American Girl dolls. No different from any other sleepover they had had together at this point. Now, at first, Morgan and Anissa... We're going to stay awake until Peyton fell asleep and then stab her in the neck. But they were both too tired to kill anyone, apparently, that night. Well, sure. <laughs> too much. Even that. Roller skating takes a lot out of you. But, I, but even that, they could think, you know what? It, it's going to take some energy. The fact that they could even understand that mm-hmm. concept. But Morgan set her alarm for 2 a.m. And they were going to wake up and they were going to do it then. And Morgan wound up canceling her alarm. And she later said that she wanted to give Peyton, quote, one more morning, unquote. Thoughtful and considerate. So early in the morning, Anissa woke up and she found Morgan already awake. And she became angry that Morgan didn't wake her up to murder their friend, right? But they decided, you know what, we'll go through with it later in the day somehow. So Anissa and Morgan just went downstairs to play on the computer again. Yeah, we'll kill her later. Don't worry about it. Let's go play The Sims. Sure, we got this covered. We can do it whenever we feel like. So Peyton wakes up and she finds that Morgan and Anissa were already up and playing together, which is kind of how the night before went too, right? So again, she's feeling a little third wheelish. Right. And she's not really having a lot of fun, and she considered going home. Morgan's mom had strawberries and donuts for breakfast, and when Peyton was in the bathroom changing her clothes, Morgan and Anissa utilizing their coded language in front of Morgan's mother, planned to carry it out that day at the park. David's Park. So they all changed into their clothes for the day. Morgan asked her mother if that they could go to 
to the park, which her mother, of course, said yes. And the three girls walked, as Mickey said, to David's Park in Waukesha. But what nobody saw was that before they left, Morgan grabbed a six-inch bladed knife from the kitchen drawer and hid it underneath their jacket. And on the walk to the park, Morgan flashed the knife to Anissa, so they both knew this was on. The weapon was in hand. Now, while at the park, Anissa felt it best to kill Peyton in the bathrooms because there was a drain for the blood to go down. But first, the three girls were going to play on the playground. Again, like sure, anybody let's else. have a good time let's get before a, we get the murder on. Let's get a quick half hour of playtime in, right. and then we'll take care of business. We want Peyton to be at ease. It was a 75-degree day. It was beautiful. The sun was shining. So Morgan goes into the bathroom, and a short while later, she comes out and tells Anissa and Peyton to come in to check out some vandalism that she said was in the bathroom. So they follow her in there. And Morgan starts talking to Peyton about Slenderman, starts lecturing her about Slenderman and becoming proxies. And Peyton doesn't know what the hell's going on now. She thinks it's a game. And they have her sit on the floor. And then Anissa and Morgan go into the stall and they start talking. And Peyton's like, what in the hell am I doing sitting on the floor in a bathroom while they're in a stall talking? What the hell's going on here? But in the stall, Morgan and Anissa are actually arguing about which one is going to stab her because neither one wanted to do it. Well, there's, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. So they came out of the stall, and Anissa punches Peyton and tries to knock her out. Quote, Anissa tried to knock Bella out. Bella got all mad and stuff, and I was pacing in circles, Morgan later told police. So that's what they decided to do in their little bathroom-style conference there was punch her, try to knock her out first, and then they would stab her. Stab her body when she wasn't conscious. But Anissa, sounds like she just kind of like wound up pushing her a little bit in the forehead and knocked her back. And so so Peyton left the bathroom and, and she went to, to play in the playground again. I'm not sure why she didn't leave. Right. That's the part that I don't understand. I mean, I know these are young girls, but why didn't Peyton see the red flags even more than she'd already had and because gone, think, just get the hell out of there? I think the punch probably wasn't much of a punch. Maybe. And Anissa was prone to hitting people anyways. So and, she you thought know, it was she just another thing. Yeah. So I, I don't, obviously she stayed and she must, she clearly didn't think that they were trying to hurt her because she wouldn't have stayed then. Right. Yeah. So, she seems like a logical kid from all testimonies. So, you know, ha, what do we have here? We ha, at first they were going to kill her in, the, in her sleep. That didn't work. Then they're going to kill her in the bathroom. That didn't work. But yet they still don't give up. Right. They still plug away at this plan. They had plenty of time again to say, nah, you know, we're in over our heads here. Let's not do this. No. And Anissa would even say later on when she was taped and during interrogation, quote, I was told if I didn't do something, my family would be in danger, unquote. So this is their M.O. This is, they're trying to protect the family they love by taking, by making this sacrifice. So they're completely motivated to make sure it gets done. So they devise another plan on the fly here, and that is to try to lure Peyton into the woods. Ironically, just like Slender Man does. So they tell her they're going to go bird watching, and then they tell her that they're going to go play hide-and-seek. And they play a few times of hide-and-seek, and Morgan uh, is going to be the seeker, I guess. What do you call them? The person that counts while the other two go hide. And Peyton and Anissa go off and hide, and Anissa tells 
Peyton to lie down and kind of cover herself in branches and, and leaves and dirt. And Peyton, Peyton's like, yeah, I'm not. I've played I'm plenty of hide that. and seek. I, none of my friends ever told me to cover myself up with leaves and branches. So she's she. Thank she, you, by the way, for not ever having done that to me when we were playing these games. I appreciate it. <laughs> Again, I was not, not trying nearly to as me. sophisticated as these twelve-year-olds. <laughs> so girls you would have tried to kill me. Yeah, I would have figured out a different way to do it. Further along, well, that's good to know now. Thanks. So Anissa is is mad that that Peyton is refusing to lay on the ground like she told her to. She so, so she winds up throwing her down. She throws her on the ground and sits on her and starts holding her down. And obviously Peyton is screaming for her to get off, and she says she can't breathe, and she starts making a scene, and Morgan is watching this. And Anissa gets off her finally, and she walks over to Morgan, and they're angrily talking that Peyton won't lie down. Like, how dare this girl not comply with our plan here? And Morgan and Anissa start arguing about who's going to stab her. Again, they don't know who's going to do it. Neither one of them wants to do it. And while they're arguing about this, Peyton, who has her back to them, is picking flowers. She's been punched She's been thrown down to the ground and sat on, basically smothered, and now she's picking flowers which, which, while they're arguing about which one of them is going to stab her. Which just has to say, because this girl seems to see things a little more logically than the other two, she's so used to their erratic behavior right. that this does not even bother and her. She's tolerant of it. Right. And she's and okay. She That's still just forgets friend, about right? it so quickly. So as Anissa and Morgan are arguing about who's going to stab her, Peyton is picking flowers behind them. Anissa actually told Morgan, go, quote-unquote, go ballistic, go crazy. So once they decided Morgan was going to do it, Anissa was coaching her up to say, just go crazy. Morgan crouches down by Peyton, tells her she's sorry, throws her down to the ground, straddles her, and plunges the knife into her over and over and over again. Anissa finally tells Morgan to stop because she couldn't take the screaming anymore. And Morgan gets up and she's covered in blood, obviously. Peyton, clearly, is covered in blood as well. They tell Peyton to lie there while they go for help. Quote, she said she couldn't see, she couldn't walk, and she couldn't breathe. Unquote. And again, they just told her to lie there as they went for help after they stabbed her. And Peyton had to be thinking, I don't know what to do. They told her to lie down because she would lose blood slower that way. Like they're trying to help her after having stabbed her. And then they told her that they were going to go get help. And and Peyton believed them. Right. Which They had no intention to get help. That's the sign of a 12-year-old girl not knowing that there's no way that people who just stabbed you are going for help. It's just such a crazy concept. They told her they they were going to get help. And they walked out of the woods, and they left her there to die with zero intention of getting help. And, as we mentioned, they were off to find the castle in the woods. About 9.53 a.m. So we're only, I think, about 20 minutes or so since they left her house. So this happened pretty quickly. Right. Park must have been close by. A cyclist named Greg Steinberg was coming back from a charity bike race that had just ended, and he turned down Big Bend Road, which went alongside the woods at David's Park. And he found a young girl lying in a ditch on the side of the road. 
She had crawled to an open patch of grass outside of, a, of the thicker woods and near the bike path so she could be seen by anyone. She dragged herself, bloody, barely breathing, barely conscious, out of the woods in hopes that somebody would see her. And he did. And he calls 911. And Peyton is whisked away into emergency surgery. He stayed with her and comforted her until the ambulance would show up. She stabbed 19 times. 19 times. With the stab wounds having landed in the chest, abdomen, arm, and leg, according to the doctor at Waukesha Memorial Hospital, Brian Huxdorf. Morgan and Anissa stopped at a stream to rinse off for a bit. Obviously get a lot of the blood off of them. And then they went into Walmart to use the bathroom and to clean up a little more. And they were actually pretty astonished that nobody at Walmart even batted an eye at them. Like, they're muddy, bloody, unkempt teenage girls, and nobody at Walmart... Thinks twice about it. Right. And so they, they go into Walmart, they clean up a little bit, and then they go to Steinhoffel's because they had free snacks at Steinhoffel's, right? Cookies, juice. Right. And they're just about to head out on their trek to Slender Mansion, which is about a 100-hour walk north. Yep. Supposedly, they traveled about five miles on foot, and Morgan later confirmed to the investigator that they they went to find his castle, as they figured it was located in the Nicolay National Forest. There's no way they had any idea where they were going. So they're picked up on the side of the highway. They're picked up on the side of I-94 later that day because police had been looking for them because Peyton, in a very brief interview before she had to be whisked away into surgery so she wouldn't die, was able to tell them who had done this to her. So Morgan and Anissa had walked about 10 miles total, five of those being in the wrong direction. So they didn't get far. They walked far. They weren't successful in their execution. So obviously they do a search, right? The police immediately raid Morgan and Anissa's house. They go into their rooms. They go into their lockers at school. They don't find a whole lot with Anissa. But Morgan's room is filled with all kinds of very dark, concerning drawings, writings, lots of Slenderman drawings, sayings like, I want to die, searches on Google of, quote, what kind of insane am I, unquote, Barbie dolls with their arms and legs chopped off, signs of a disturbed child who likely knew she was not okay. But apparently her parents did not. So Morgan and Anissa are detained, they're brought in, they're interrogated. And this is where we head into the part of the saga that is is still debated quite a bit today. Created a lot of public discourse about this, about some of the legal proceedings that followed, and just how do we deal with two attempted murderers, very brutal and cold-blooded as it may be, but they're 12. They're 12 years old, one of whom is very clearly mentally challenged, to say the least. Well, they both obviously had something going on. As far as the wounds done to Peyton, there were five wounds on her arm, seven on her leg, and the rest were scattered throughout her torso. Two hit major organs and one missed her major artery by less than a millimeter, which would have meant her death. So despite all this horrific action that was happening to her because of her two so-called friends, she escaped death by millimeter. A millimeter is less than the thickness of your fingernail, by the way. The blade of the knife is thicker than that. That's how far she came to being dead. Right. So they're brought into different rooms and they're interrogated separately. 
Anissa for three hours, Morgan for five hours. They were not allowed a phone call to their parents. They were not allowed to have their parents present in the room. Their parents were contacted by the police, however, and they were at the police station. So their parents knew that at least they were safe physically, that they were okay physically. But they had no idea that they were being questioned about the attempted murder of Peyton, which is perfectly legal in Wisconsin, by the way. You are allowed to interrogate a minor without their parents being there. And the lead detective actually said that they're more apt to get truthful answers without parents being present. So they're going to use the law to their full advantage, as they should. Why wouldn't they, right? They have another 12-year-old who's clinging to life right now. And they need to make sure why this was done and the people who did this are held responsible. So people cannot be happy with that law, and there are certainly people that are not. But that is the law in Wisconsin. They don't have to call their parents and, and have them and, there. And laws are often set up trying to consider everyone's point of view, but every, with anything else, you're not going to make everyone happy. Now, they were read their Miranda rights, both Anissa and Morgan, and they could have chosen not to talk, right? But they didn't. They waived their Miranda rights, and they spilled everything. And they, now they're, they blamed Slenderman. Their interrogations are online. They're all over the place. You can see them. You can watch these interrogations, and I encourage you all to do this if you're interested in this story, because it is frightening. Frightening. Listening to these 12-year-old girls talk about planning to kill their best friend and how they carried it out. Morgan would actually admit to detectives as far as her feelings about this whole quote, I have wanted to hurt people before, but they're not nice to me, so they deserve it, unquote. This is her logic. Quote, it was weird. I felt no remorse. I thought I would. I actually felt nothing, quote, unquote. So nothing. This girl at this age, I mean, the term is psychopath. Now, Anissa is clearly the more truthful of the two. She shows emotion. She starts to cry a few times. She seems stable. She's clearly scared about what will happen to her, and she accepts responsibility for her part in what happened. Much less psychopathic than Morgan. Now, Morgan, on the other hand, is stone freaking cold. No emotion. And I often wonder if a psychopath can be developed at that age, but obviously, in this case, no emotion, no remorse. She even says she has no remorse, saying that remorse is pointless. As I said earlier, yeah, she felt nothing. She thought she would, but she didn't. It's utterly psychopathic. But we don't call 12-year-olds psychopaths in this country. No, and the fact that she was aware of herself enough to know that she should have felt something and didn't. So even that she knew was wrong, but it still doesn't change the fact that she felt nothing. She gets perturbed at the detective a few times, and she's... um, Asking if he's asking the same question in different ways to try to get her to change her story. She's very smart and clearly has done a lot of research on what happens in this situation. As she said, she has an above average IQ. So She she seems bored at times. She talks very matter-of-factly about what they did. And she also puts almost all of the blame on Anissa. All of it. Anissa said we should kill Bella. Anissa came up with the plan. Anissa told me to do it. Anissa knew about Slenderman. I didn't. Even saying Anissa is the one that initially stabbed Peyton, which isn't true. Anissa didn't stab her at all. Well, and it's just it's just more to the point that if you have no remorse, you have no about anybody, and you have no responsibility or accountability. Like you're so willing to throw your best friend. Your only friend 
technically, to, to be able to throw your own friend that much under the bus that adamantly and have no remorse for it means you just are incapable of remorse, which is where psychopathy lives. Morgan is very ill, there's no question. But she's also very deceptive. She lied throughout that entire interrogation, blaming Anissa for it, and she did it without feeling an ounce of guilt. Now, Peyton Leitner survived, thank goodness. She makes it through two emergency surgeries after being stabbed 19 times with a six-inch blade in the woods, left for dead. And these were not superficial wounds, as Mickey had mentioned before. She was stabbed in the stomach, her pancreas was stabbed, and the blade missed her heart, as Mickey said, by a millimeter. One millimeter, and she is dead. There. On the spot, she's dead. So, thank God, to her credit, there was luck involved in the fact that she was had the wherewithal to crawl herself to where someone could find her. I, I mean, people panic and they become overwhelmed, so this girl still had the, the, the wherewithal to crawl to her safety, and she still lives today, thank God, as a result. So on September 26, 2014, ABC's 2020 featured the case, focusing on Lautner's recovery and her return to school in seventh grade. This is obviously not long after it happened. The first time the family had spoke publicly about the whole story. On October 25th, 2019, ABC's 2020 also did a follow-up story. This was the first time Peyton herself spoke publicly about the whole story. In response, Creepypasta has issued a statement confirming that Slenderman isn't real, and a fundraiser was put together for Peyton Lautner. About a week after the attack, a 13-year-old girl in Ohio reportedly, also obsessed with Slenderman, tried to stab her mother. So there are other cases that this Slenderman concept had a major effect on. Now, both girls are charged with first-degree intentional homicide, which in Wisconsin, anybody over 10 is charged with first-degree intentional homicide, you're automatically waived into adult court. Some people disagree with that, and that's a legit debate, no doubt. But that, again, is the law. So both these girls go to adult court. Now, they both appeal, and they both try to have it reverse-wavered, which means to send it back to juvenile court. And in juvenile court, you know, look, they turn 18, they're out. Their records are expunged, and they get to start life over, right? But the court denies this. The judge in this case, Michael Boren, denies it based on the brutal, really the calculated brutality of the crime. He denies their appeals and also felt that it, um, you know, sending them back to juvenile court would diminish the seriousness of what they did. And both will be tried in adult court. So now they're fucked, right? Now they're facing 40-ish years in adult prison. So their only recourse, their only option, if they don't want to go to prison until they're in their 50s, these 12-year-old girls, is hope for some way for NGI. Not guilty by reason of insanity, of insanity or mental defect. Now, Anissa winds up cutting a deal, and she pleads guilty to second-degree intentional homicide, but a jury would have to hear her insanity defense. So if a jury finds her guilty, she goes to prison. For a lesser charge, but she goes to prison, and probably for a long time. So Anissa, who prior to these events had never had any mental health issues that are known about, nothing from teachers, nothing from her family members to believe anything might have been wrong, certainly seems competent in her three-hour-long interrogation, she gets a diagnosis. In September of 2017. She gets diagnosed by three doctors with shared psychotic disorder, 
which basically says that because she was close to Morgan, who was clearly disturbed and delusional, she began to share in those delusions, making her not able to understand what is real or what is not. The essential feature is identical or similar delusion developed in an individual involved with another who already has psychotic disorder with a prominent delusions. Formerly, this was known as induced psychotic disorder. This can involve many people, like a family, but most often it's in relationships of only two. It's known as folie à deux, which is French for madness of two. Not typically officially recognized, but in this case it helped her as the jury agreed that she suffered from mental illness at the time of the attempted murder. Shared psychotic disorder, or folia du, extremely rare. It's so rare that the DSM-5 doesn't even recognize it. Especially because most people can't pronounce folia du. And you're French. And when it is diagnosed, this there's a lot of doctors that don't even believe this diagnosis, but those that do, it takes years to manifest. Like this, when you when you see shared psychotic disorder, you see this in people who have been married for 50 years. siblings that have grown up in the same house and their parents are dead for 50 years. That's shared psychotic disorder. So you're saying a 12-year-old might not be able to develop that? A 12-year-old who was friends with Morgan for five months, they diagnosed with shared psychotic disorder. And I have to believe it's because they didn't want to put a 12-year-old in prison for that one. And the jury finds her not criminally responsible. They, They buy that diagnosis and they find her NGI. So she gets sentenced to 25 years in Winnebago Mental Health Institute. Now Morgan pleads NGI to the first degree intentional homicide charge, to the initial charge, and she is diagnosed with early onset schizophrenia. Again, extremely rare. Or psychotic spectrum disorder. The symptoms are similar in in children as it is in adults. It includes psychosis, delusions, auditory hallucinations, i.e. hearing voices, developmental delays, language difficulties, problems coping with schoolwork and social relationships, and trouble expressing, recognizing emotions known as quote-unquote flat effect. All symptoms that we discussed that everyone could see in her pretty readily before all this happened. And the prosecution doesn't even argue this. It doesn't go to trial. They run with that. It was clear as day in this particular individual. She's sentenced to 40 years at Winnebago. Both of them were sentenced to Winnebago Mental Health Institute, which is in Oshkosh. Now, there's a lot of debate about this, right? And there's no easy answers. They're 12 years old, clearly mentally ill, both diagnosed with a mental illness during the crime. And there's a lot of talk about the harshness of Wisconsin law regarding these girls, that these girls were somehow wronged by the system. How do you charge two 12-year-old girls as adults? Judge Michael Bolren to the New York Times said, quote, It's a long time, but this is an issue of community protection. To be sure, there's no recidivism. This is an issue to ensure that Miss Geyser doesn't have a revolving door situation where she ends up being in the community and then things fall apart and she comes back, unquote. So there's something to be said for that. When you're found NGI in Wisconsin, you can petition every six months for your release. And in 2021, Anisa Wire was released. Conditionally, she had a GPS monitoring system on her and she had to continue with outpatient psychiatric treatment. But just last month, actually a couple of months ago, it's in she, September, she was released from GPS monitoring. So she's out of Winnebago. She has no GPS monitor anymore. The Institute staff described her as a model inmate. She was an excellent student and even took on a big sister role with other inmates. At one point, she was put on suicide watch and had a breakdown after a group of girls ganged up on her, calling her a fucking bitch and monster. Quote, that's what I am, exactly what they called me, she reportedly said. So that shows remorse right there. 
She reportedly wanted nothing more to do with Morgan Geyser because she'd obviously learned the error of her ways. So as far as the mental issues, I think she was just very, very immature. But turns out she was going to live with her father and brother and father's girlfriend and continue to be under community supervision until 2039 when she'd be 37. As Scott said, she'd be monitored by GPS tracking until 2039, but obviously that changed. She was not allowed internet access, also couldn't spend night anywhere other than her father's house, and she must participate in 20 hours a week of structured social or vocational activities. This is a quote from her. Quote, I am not saying I am done with my treatment. I am saying that I have exhausted all the resources available to me at the Winnebago Mental Health Institute. If I am to become a productive member of society, I need to be a part of society. Aside from being committed to being healthy, I am also committed to using this negative situation and publicity for something good. I want to use my experience losing myself in mental illness as a way to make others who are dealing with mental struggles see they are not alone. This is not the end of who you are. This not, does not define you and give a reality check to people who are asking for help, unquote. She is considering continuing education in hopes of one day working with at-risk teens. So by all means, it sounds like she's learned from her experience and is trying to prevent other people from doing it. So good for her, I guess. Well, I will say this. Anissa Wire better be counting her lucky stars every single day. And I think that's what that all says. She's not in prison for the next 25 years because that shared psychotic disorder diagnosis, that was a gift. (laughs) Right. It sounds like a bunch of BS. That was a gift. That was a literal get out of jail card. But everything I just said, I mean, and all we can do is, is assess the information we're learning. Everything... She's accepting full responsibility, and she's trying to be better for it. And what's the term as far as paying it forward? I mean, she's she's. It sounds by all means that she's learned from her experience, which is a horrific one, and she's trying to prevent other people from doing it. So, you you look at the planning that went into this. You look at the sophistication of it. You look at the research of the justice system and crime scene investigation. There's no history of mental illness with her. Right. And they gave her this diagnosis. Now, the only thing that would save her was a possible NGI defense, and they gave it to her. And this is what I think you alluded to earlier, Mick. This was doctors looking at this situation and seeing this is a 12-year-old girl who is in big, big trouble. Because if she's 25, there's no way that's the verdict. Wondering what they could do to give her a chance. She's a child and, and they, they wanted did. her to have a life after. They gave her that chance and the jury did the same. I don't think the jury bought this. Right. Well, and like you said, it sounds like by all intents and purposes, she's taking it and running in the right direction with it. So from what, from what I can tell, the right decision was made, I guess, if she's continuing on with everything we just said. Now, Morgan Geyser is another story. She's clearly very compromised to the point where she's still not trusted to be in the community. And I would assume at some point that will change, and she'll be released as well. In June of 2022, Morgan once again filed a petition to serve the remainder of her sentence under similar circumstances as Anissa now does. She required the support of three medical professionals approved by court. Report submitted on August 3, 2022 by Dr. Deborah Collins was enough to prompt Morgan to pull back her request. The full report still has not been released to the public. Currently, Morgan remains at the Winnebago Mental Health Institution because, as Scott alluded to, she is not in the same boat. But the notion, and and, and this is this is a pretty big part of the book that I mentioned too, the Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls, a pretty big part of that book, the voice of that book, is sympathetic to Morgan and Anissa. And that's not wrong. 
It's not right? wrong. They're That's children. not wrong. They're impressionable children. These girls, influenced. these girls need to have advocates for them as well because they were so young and they were so immature and, and, and maybe forces beyond their control working here. But the notion that the mental health system or the criminal justice system here somehow didn't work because there's a lot of people that are critical of the judge saying the judge was way too harsh. There's a lot of people that are critical of when Morgan was initially at Winnebago and they were, you know, there's a notion out there that they were withholding medication from her, you know, and they, they don't, there, there's a lot that goes into this stuff and that's not necessarily true. And I'm guessing Peyton Lautner's family don't necessarily look at it that way. Of course not. So as is usually the case, people aren't necessarily willing to put themselves in somebody else's shoes unless it's a child in this situation. Right. But think about Peyton Lautner's family and right. how bitter they might be towards Morgan and Anissa. There's, as I said, there's, there's a big attitude out there about this story that the mental health system in regards to Morgan and Anissa and the criminal justice system, because these are 12-year-old girls tried as adults, didn't work and that they were somehow railroaded by the system. I would disagree with that. We had a horrific tragedy that occurred here. We had a good Samaritan come upon and help her. We had police and first responders act quickly. We had medical doctors save the life of Peyton Leitner. And we had a criminal justice system that acted on the crime that occurred, found the two minors not criminally responsible, and the girls were sentenced harshly, yes, but with the opportunity to advance out, which is exactly what happened with Anissa. And it's the same judge who sentenced her to 25 years at Winnebago, who released her after only a few. So I would say the system did work here, and it saved these girls' lives, probably all three of them. Was it perfect? No. And possibly the lives of others in Morgan's case, because if she's capable of these horrific acts, who knows if she'd have been put out on the street and not kept in rehab or the mental institute, what else she might have done. Right. And and two of these three girls now, as, as we stand, have the ability... To, to move on and to lead somewhat normal lives. Yeah, this never leaves you, whether you're the victim or the potential murderer. But again, you can try to be better as a result going forward. And the third girl is still a work in progress, and that's not the system's fault. No, that's mental illness. But, I, you know, I think we're at a point now that we have, you know, we now know the full story, that we can kind of root for all three of these girls, right? To at least be able to move on. I don't know if Peyton Leitner can ever fully be healed from this. I don't know how you could be, tell you the truth. I don't think something this horrific happens to you, especially from trusted friends, especially at such an impressionable age where everything is such a big deal. I don't think it ever leaves you, but you you can learn from it and go forward and be stronger because, as they say, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So, And I don't I don't think Anissa's life should have been over either for something that she did when she was 12, but I also don't believe that it should have been scot-free after turning 18 either. There needs to be consequences, not just for the sole purpose of punishment. Well, but especially for something so horrific. There's an obligation to your community, to a society that these things, regardless of age or immaturity, needs to be addressed. And that's what the judge said in that quote I read earlier. These are strong sentences, and he lightened up on her sentences specifically, but when they're showing obvious signs that they've learned from their mistake, which in this case seems a little ridiculous to be able to say that, I mean, children are not fully developed mentally, so maybe they get more of a pass. And I don't I don't think we need to put blame. I, I, I think pointing fingers and pointing blame 
is not the way we should do things, even though that's the first thing our society wants to do. But responsibility does need to be accepted, as we usually talk about. Unfortunately, the parents didn't make the right decision as far as addressing Morgan's issues. The court system made its decisions. Uh, You're always going to question anything like this. In the long run, it just comes down to people being people and and learning from their mistakes. And in, in this case, at least Anissa Wire seems to be um, trying to prevent it going forward. But as far as I'm concerned, there's there's one victim here, and that's Peyton Leitner. And her family. And she, thank goodness, seems to be doing all right today. And at least for me, that gives this story, in some way, a happy ending. Especially with children, because they're our future, as corny as that sounds. But when it comes to such a serious act, the punishment needs to be laid down. So if nothing else, the people doing the act can learn from their lessons. So I'm not sure that the judge's decision for this long time was the worst thing in the world. As horrific an act as they executed, I mean, they were a millimeter from killing someone. Horrifically. Ritualistically. Even maybe in those regards, especially children, deserve a second chance. Amen.